Hey friends, happy new year. Mike Myers here with the Songwriting for Guitar podcast, episode number 19, Forrest Whitehead. If you've ever wondered how does somebody move to a music city and build something organically from the ground up, you gotta hear Forrest's story. We'll talk about how he got signed to his first publisher, how he produced Kelsey Ballerini's very first record, and decided to form Music City Playbook. So we're just gonna jump in, episode number 19, Forrest Whitehead. I feel like you're like a Swiss army knife because <laughs> you're a producer, you're a multi, multi-instrumentalist, session musician, you know, songwriter, and then educator. That's so many things all encompassing in one, you know, one creative person. When, you know, when was kind of like your start into the idea of creating, you know, regardless, where did it kind of like begin? Well, you know, I guess whenever you grow up in a small town and, you know, for me, I was listening to a lot of country radio or popular radio, um, just whatever was my friends were listening to in high school growing up. And I, I just was influenced a ton by wanting to be involved with music. I was playing in bands growing up. I was playing for the church. I was writing songs in my bedroom as soon as I could learn how to put a couple chords together. Like it was a just an obsession from a young age. So for me, trying to figure out a way to make a living doing it just ha- had to happen. And and that's interesting. Like, especially like, I feel like songwriters, producers, when you said like listening to songs on the radio, I feel like that's so beneficial because sometimes when you're a kid, people are like, don't listen to the radio, man. You got to listen to this band. But like sometimes some of the best songs and best melodies that enter your brain are from the radio. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I feel like being a commercial driven songwriter, most of my success has been in the commercial country market, but I've been heavily influenced by just, I mean, you know, everything from Alison Krauss to Eminem to Aerosmith to Garth Brooks. So it was just a, a huge amount of, of difference that I, that I loved and I wanted to create bluegrass. I wanted to, uh, you know, produce a rap track. It was just the obsess of, of creating, you know, from a, a young age, just kind of as what's driven me. So were you also trying find finding ways to record? Like, you know, like, um, I've, I've heard stories of like, you know, uh, producers, like at the beginning, they just grabbed like, you know, an old tape deck and tried to find ways to start recording their guitar and their instruments to just get something going. Yeah, totally. I did the tape deck thing and re-recorded over another tape. And, and, you know, that, I mean, that was, um, you know, right before I got a computer that ran quick enough, I think it was like an Acer laptop or something that, that ran quick enough to take in audio, uh, downloaded Audacity online, which was a free DAW. And that was my first introduction on recording two different guitar parts, painting them apart, feeling how to produce something with with two different vocals and so yeah whenever i had the tools even the very basic tools in the beginning it was just um a key to me learning and progressing with this because it always leveled up it's like oh man if i can record this then you know yeah. i can make it sound different you know and it i, I just love that part of the creation process it's funny when you record how like even if it's just like oh it's a four chord song it seems much more because you realize the doors are wide open. There's so much that can happen within those four chords. Totally. Even just like whenever I first started recording and learning, okay, if you've 
put the capo differently on the guitar and and voice it differently and wide pan that like it gives a different vibe to the choruses or whatever that was. So just the earlier production techniques I learned very early on just because I was interested in it, you know? Uh, and and to, you, you were in bands. I'm curious, what were some of your bands early on and like band names? Oh man, terrible band names for sure. <laughs> and honestly, uh, I mentioned I was from a small town. There was a couple of friends that, three other dudes that I was pretty much in the same band that changed names, but we went from a rock band to a more Christian band and, you know, wherever we could have a place to play. So uh, the name of the band was Clearview. It was a terrible name, but it was a... Um, uh, it was the, my introduction into loading up a trailer and traveling a couple of hours, showing up and, you know, <laughs> whether whether we were playing for a crowd or whether no one showed up, it was still the same excitement and the same uh, mindset behind it is, you know, we're going to go do our best and sing our songs. Everything we did was always original. So even from a young age, I, I never really did the cover band thing. It was always came from original spot. So I always took any opportunity to sing my songs or perform my songs in front of anybody. And I find when you're in a band too, it's, it is, it's, you know, it's like a business. It's like you take it seriously. It's like you get no matter how you're describing it, it's like no matter what, guys, if it's like a hundred people here tonight or three people, we're gonna play a good show. Like it's just like because you realize we're gonna win those three people. Absolutely. And for me, doing that early on too showed me, I mean, I, I enjoyed playing live, but it also gave me the contrast to say what I really love is creating in the studio. Um, because you know, there were uh, frustrations on the road where you do put in a lot of work, time, money, and you do show up certain places and people don't show up and you want to perform your best show. But where I found what me getting excited more consistently is waking up, writing a new song, producing a new record more than playing the same songs live uh, night after night. So that's kind of where I started to lean into, especially once I moved to Nashville, because I felt even before I moved to Nashville, I had done a little bit of traveling as a musician and thought, man, if I can figure out a way to wake up, create my studio, that's that's the ticket. That's just kick ass because you realize that early on, like it takes that for some people, it takes that a while to come to that realization of what they really like about music. Like they think it's the band thing. And then later on, it's like, uh oh, I don't think it's that. But I really enjoy this because you said so you you came from your small town. Was it just a very conscious decision early on to be like, if I'm going to do anything in music, it needs to be here because this is my best shot of where I'm going to run people, make connections and just like hustle. Yeah. So, I mean, Nashville for me definitely was the outlet of but it was also in my comfort zone. It was still in that I was familiar with that. I made a couple trips here, but it, it still didn't feel as intimidating as LA. And for me, being here in Nashville early on, I moved here when I was 18. So wow. there was a lot of things that, I, that, that could have happened. So I'm grateful that I did get in business with people that were treated me right and grew my career in a, a very positive direction. Uh, but I feel like, you know, people have different stories with getting in weird situations like that. But I, I, whenever I moved to Nashville, it was in that comfort zone of, I know I can make something out of music here and it's not so far away that where I feel like it's obtainable, you know? And you were 18. I feel like also too, when you're 18, 
And just in general, because you have this kind of a little bit more energy of this optimistic energy of just like, I'm going to do this thing. Not to say that you can't when you're like it later on, but there's something about like those prime years too, where you're just like, no matter what, I'm just going to keep on doing it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to figure it out. <laughs> Man, I feel like overthinking stuff like steals so much opportunity. Everything in my life that has turned out to be something has been things that I've acted on off gut instinct. And, yeah. you know, it really was a simple thing of, of something just dropped in my spirit one day as a, as a sophomore in high school. And it's like, you're going to move to Nashville. Like, I didn't know what I was going to do or where I was going to go. I, I just knew that that was that was it. And it wasn't a question. It wasn't something that I kind of considered and weighed against going to school. It was like, all right, I'm going to Nashville. If I want to do music, then that's where it is. And so coming here as a guitar player, being around songwriters and being around producers, you know, it kind of exposed me to a world that I wasn't familiar with until moving here. And I was like, wow, you can, you can do this. You can do this. Yeah. You know, there are all kinds of different lanes of being able to uh, make music. If you bring value in that, in that, specific lane, you know, so you, you said something about being a Swiss army knife. I feel like that has been a, such an asset to me because I have played on the road. I have been the guitar player. I have been the background vocalist, like, but I've also been the producer. I've been the songwriter. Like there's a lot of hats that I've, I've loved to wear, but where I feel most comfortable is in the production chair. Uh, now getting into that, like since you kind of embrace the idea of starting to record, I feel that is a huge asset when you go into a right and someone's like, you mean we could get like, you know, a version of the song like recorded now? And it's like, yeah, right now. It's like I that to me is a huge asset. That has to be when you move. Was that kind of the intention? Did you slowly over time merge recording with playing when you were doing writing or did it slowly start just you bringing a guitar? And then later on, you were like, oh, this is now now I can start to bring in a track, too. Yeah, it's kind of was both. I mean, I always recorded, like I said, even when I was growing up in my town, I, I was recording things, but I didn't really incorporate it into my writing until honestly, I I started doing little basic demos and one of them got cut. I wrote it on Wednesday and I did like a little lick, tried to build out a little band demo and the song ended up getting cut on a Friday just because I was able to turn around and have a representation of it pretty wow. quickly. I was kind of in the mindset of, you know, you book the session, you wait a couple of weeks, you put a band together, you know, and all that. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the era that, you know, I was here that was still going on. So I feel very lucky and fortunate to have had start having success around the 2014, 15, 16 era to where track building, laptops, loops, splice, all that stuff was just coming around. So uh, I feel like I rode the wave of that new market of being able to provide that value in the room because there weren't a lot of people in town at the time that could do that. Now, early on, when you moved at 18, did you stay with someone or was this just like you were there on your own and then you formed the relationships as you were going through? You know, everybody always knows somebody who lives in Nashville. So it's like uh, the person at my church back home, like who ran the soundboard or whatever. It's like, yeah, yeah, I got an old friend that moved up there. So he gave me his number. My dad helped me pull a travel trailer up here. We parked at the KOA campground and I was there for about six months and, you know, just making trips downtown, really walking up and down Music Road, had no idea where to start, you know, very, very green. But I ended up calling this guy that I got the number from who gave me from the church. He owned a pawn shop and hired me there. 
and allowed me to work, but also take music opportunities because he kind of understood that. So that was kind of my, you know, introduction into getting my footing here. I was making a little bit of money, but I was, you know, music was always the number one thing. You know, I remember I was working at McDougal's Chicken in Hillsbury Village. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah, but I was serving chicken in there and I saw BMI come up on my phone one day. I just literally dropped everything. You know, I was like, like walking food to the table. I dropped everything right there <laughs> and I just went to go pick up the phone because I was like, this is an opportunity. And, I, you know, pretty much losing my job over that kind of situation. But it, it's one of those things to where nothing was more important than furthering the music, no matter what I was doing in the in-between. It was like, that's what I came here for, you know, so that's what we're going to focus on. I feel like that's so important to hear, especially for people that are doing music and they're working a job. That they're like, ah, this, you know, but if it's a job that's helping you do the thing that you want to do, it's flexible and it allows you to kind of make those changes. That's the purpose of that job. So it's not, you know, it's not a setback. It's not something that's lesser. It's something that's just helping you forward the thing that you want to do. Absolutely. And also too, that campground where you were saying that's by Opry, right? That's, I'm, I'm yeah, that. Op, yeah. Opry, yeah, Opry Valley Drive, yeah. Okay, so you are in a trailer, trailer you're, you're working in a pawn shop. How does it get from there to eventually you producing Kelsey Ballerini's first album? Yeah, so that's quite a time span there. So I know the, that's a jump. Yeah, so the trailer and when I first moved to town, that was 2009, 2010. I signed my first pub deal in 2011 with Black River Entertainment. I got my pub deal from building a relationship with my ASCAP rep. He got my music to the desk of somebody who was able to make decisions at Black River. It felt like the right fit. I signed there as just like like a lunch pail writer, meaning like I brought my guitar and my notebook in and I would do my rights and kind of be gone by three or four o'clock in the day. And that that's what I did because that's what I saw around me. And mm-hmm. not until I started incorporating the production and staying up past the session and working on the demos did I see start seeing movement in my career. So I signed my first pub deal as just a straight up songwriter and started incorporating the production as I saw that it provided more opportunities. So from 2011, 2012, a year into my deal, I get my first major label cut. It was on Brantley Gilbert, Man Like Me album or something. I, I forget what it was. A couple of albums ago, whatever it was, 2012. Mm-hmm. And I was so expecting that cut, you know, as people say, oh, this is going to be the next single, you know, I was so expecting that to really break up my career. Meanwhile, um, that was never a single. I started working with Kelsey in about 2013. So right around that time, she was taking meetings with Black River and she was signed as a songwriter for about a year before she got her record deal. But as she was signed as a songwriter at Black River, we just wrote all the time. And it was the first time I got in the room with somebody that I felt like, man, this is such a creative freedom. This sounds like nothing else that I'm doing with other artists. Like there's something really here. So it was just a priority. We wrote every week, if, if, if not more. And yeah. the people at Black River uh, whether the other writers signed there, it was just a, you know, it was a group. It was a clique. It was a, a camp that nobody cared about. Nobody was looking at. Nobody big writers were writing with us. We were creating something without uh, asking permission in a way from a- any other big writers or any other labels because they didn't care about it. So that's what yeah. feels so cool about the success of that is there were no eyes whatsoever 
on this project. Nobody expected it to do anything from an independent label, a no-name producer, a no-name artist. And, you know, I'm, I'm just proud of, of how that elevated. That is so, because it feels like it was very organic. It was just in the mode, as you said, like, not, you know, a million cooks in the kitchen looking, being like, it has to look like this. It's got to be like this. It yep. was just like, let's just write songs. Yeah. And there's something about, uh, I don't know, a purity when it's just like a good song's a good song. That's right. <laughs> and hearing a story like that is so cool. And what was the, how, how did that feel producing that album? Were you thinking as you, these songs were compiling, like, these are just good songs? Well, I, I have to give credit where credit's due. So as I built a relationship, writing relationship with Kelsey, mm -hmm. I would have, I would work on the demos and then I would get them to a certain point. And I would involve a good friend of mine, co-producer Jason Massey, to come in and, and, and take it and bring that extra awesomeness to the track. So he ended up co-producing. Uh, I cut the first three. at the, uh, I think it was Love Me Like You Mean It, the first time, and a song called Looking at Stars that are on her, her very first album. I cut the first three, and then Jason helped me with those. I was like, dude, these things wouldn't be the same without you. Come help me produce the rest of the record. So we ended up producing co-producing her first two records fully. And I feel like involving people that can bring something extra to it really help elevate that. So, you know, my relationship with Kelsey was more on the writing side. I was doing a bunch of writes with her and I would take the demo as far as I could. But on the production side, I knew I needed that extra edge. So involving someone else really helped that project become what it was. That is also too so cool because I feel like that's also not, you, you're, as you said, you're looking at what other people bring. Like, it's like, it's valuable. Like, this is making it, like, even better. It's just like, you've got to be a part. And I feel like that's, uh, I talked to Bonnie Baker a few episodes ago, and she was like, leave your ego at the door. Like, that to me is just you being like, serving the song and knowing that this is just going to help propel this even more. Absolutely. And I feel like, you know, you get to that point by making the mistakes of the other side. So there were plenty of years of where I felt like I wasn't serving the song or maybe I was driving the session in a way I was trying to do everything, trying to write everything, trying to sing it all. And by the time I met Kelsey, I'd kind of got confident and comfortable in what my strengths were. And that was setting a vibe and developing an idea in the room in the personality of who I'm working with. So, you know, I feel like a lot of us kind of come to town and think, okay, I'm going to be an artist. And that kind of can cloud up our vision and what we're going for. Early on, I was decided I don't want to be an artist. I just want to help artists become an artist. So I had to go through that mindset change of the two or three, four or five years before I met Kelsey to get to that maturity to where when I worked with her, even though we were still both very young, I felt like I was able to help her develop in a way that was more intentional than I was with other rights because I, I felt like I could help her. I, I loved you know, Shania Twain, Taylor Swift, you know, that mm -hmm. style of music growing up. So I felt like my production style could help elevate it. And the songs that we wrote together, you know, I was just, they were my favorite. So I, I was like anything else, when you enjoy and love what you do, it doesn't feel so much like work. So we worked all the time. Now with your songwriting process and just how you approach writing, how, how would you, you know, for some people it's melody, it's lyrics. And then sometimes it's like, it's a vibe and a feel with the guitar. How is your approach? Is it kind of different each time or is it based on kind of like what is the artist comfortable with? It is different for each artist. My job as a producer is definitely to have 
several different vibes available to pitch out in a session. So where I'll go and prepare different logic sessions that are maybe a minute long or so with different sceneries of musical things, hooks, I will pitch that out. But there's sometimes that I'll prepare four or five sessions. I'll go through and try to pitch those sessions and no, it's not, it's not working. It's not the right vibe. So I'll pick up a guitar and just go old school with it. And that's totally cool too. I enjoy that. Um, and creating just from the, the ground, the bones of it. And then I'll start layering a track during the session. But the way I prefer to write is if I can nail a vibe the morning of bringing it in that way, I already have like the groundwork laid for a session and I can be more free flow creative on layering things instead of trying to build things, you know, from the bones again. You know, as a guitarist, how do you approach guitar in production? I know it can vary from song to song, but do you have any, for your perspective, like what you enjoy doing the most with guitar when it comes to layering, when it comes to, you know, using other voicings or sometimes going like, this does not need chords. This needs a line. Yeah. You know, guitar is my primary instrument. I feel like picking up and learning the guitar is one major asset that, I had in my career as far as the production is being able to make hooky things, um, hooky licks. And when it comes to producing guitar, like I intentionally try to dumb it down as ABC as possible. If you go listen to the first record of hers, for sure, there are very, very simple sig licks and things going on to where if you're playing guitar a few weeks, you could probably play that first record. And that was very intentional because I grew up with also loving like pop punk and Blink-182 and and things that was just the same chords over and over, the same melodies in a familiar way, but delivered in a very simple, catchy engaging way so that's what i wanted to bring to my productions is not to have i don't like to have like the this you know crazy solos with all these different notes and you know that there's a time and place for that but what attracts my ear and what gets me pumped about music is having something very simple that is just so contagious you can't get it out of your head you can't see me, but I'm raising my hands, just yeah. being like, yes. I'm just like, yeah, all what you're saying to me, especially it was like mind blowing when I was learning guitar and I was like, okay, so wait a minute, the chord progression to what's my age again and the chord progression to when I come around are the same. Yeah. Totally. And I'm like, wait a minute, it's the, and it's in the same key. Wait, how is that? But they sound so, t- and then it was the realization of the power of four chords and how you can, they don't have to be presented just like four chords. It can still have texture, but it's got to be that hooky element because, you know, I love Led Zeppelin, but I can't sing you a Led Zeppelin solo. I can't hum it back to you because it's just like, I don't have enough breath in my lungs, but I could sing you back like a very simple, catchy Carly Rae Jepsen solo. I could, you know, do something that's like these four notes, but the way they utilize those four notes is just mind blowing because it's like, wait a minute. That's just like they're hanging on that one note like five times, but rhythmically playing in a way that makes it hooky and catchy. Oh, man, one of the kings of this and my mentor producer of I mean, I don't know him, but I, mean, I, I look up to him in that way is Mutt Lang. And if you you could sing back his guitar parts, it, all those production that he did for um, Shania Twain on yeah. the fiddle stuff like the hooks were in the lyrics. But of course, the, the, the hook on the guitar supported what 
the melody was doing and it wasn't like these crazy complicated licks. They were just hooky elements of the song that he brought out. So that I kind of come from that influence of trying to, if I'm going to put a guitar solo or a guitar turnaround in, it probably is influenced by melody in the song somewhere versus me just going off the the cuff of, of trying to create something new for the part. It's huge. I remember when a friend told me, I was like, I think this was around 2002 or 2003 when uh, Weezer put out the Green Album. I was like, I love this record. And years later, my friend was like, you know, basically every solo is just the melody and then they harmonize halfway. And I was like, no, it's not. And I was like, shit, he's right. It is. Totally. And it's just, it's still something, again, really powerful. And I feel like, do you feel too, like not only as a song, being not just a producer, but a songwriter too, you're very, you're absolutely aware of if there's going to be something here, it needs to be hooky and it needs to have purpose and it's serving the song. Otherwise, it's just because every spot in the song is like prime real estate. It needs to have a purpose. When I was a songwriter pitching songs to publishers early on in my career, there's that point where you turn on your song and you're like, God, are they going to turn it off? Are they going to turn it off? We're getting to the turn. Are they going to turn it off? Are they losing interest? And for me, what kept keep the engagement is even if they didn't like the song or hook, I was going to make sure I had an awesome mando lick or guitar <laughs> lick or something that tided them over or hooked their ear. So yeah. I just realized early on that without that, like some people would just pitch a, a work tape with, you know, iPhone work tape with just a sloppy guitar. Like that wasn't my style. I wanted to go through and try to get a doubled hook that seems interesting. So even if, even if they don't like the lyrical content of the song, they'll ask, man, who did this demo? Because then it's just like, well, I did it. Like, yeah, oh, really? Absolutely. It's like, I love the story of like, it's like Butch Walker when he was, his Marvelous Three, when they did like one single, they were like, that song's great. Who wrote it? I did. Well, who produced it? I did. Who recorded it? I did. Yeah. Could you do this for other bands? Probably. And it's, it's just something when you're kind of multitasking, you're doing all those things. That is, to me, that's so cool. Now, your setup too, when you are going to record guitar, do you have like some go-to settings and some go-to things where you're like, that's always a staple? Well, it depends on, I, I record a lot of acoustics here in my studio, so I love trying mm -hmm. out different mics. And, you know, a lot of people when they're doing, they go to like acoustic strummer and, and contact. And for me, I enjoy that part. So if I'm recording acoustics, um, I'm, I have a couple of outboard things that I'm messing with. I have an LA-2A that I love on acoustics. I mean, pretty much anything. And yeah. that helps me get a, when I start layering a bunch of acoustics, to do some EQ and compression on the way in helps me get, uh, I, I just a better sound quicker rather than layering a bunch of plugs. When it comes to electrics, this fractal, man, this fractal is amazing. A friend of mine, Josh Kerr, turned me on to it, and I was considering getting the Kemper. And he's like, yeah. before you do that, you got to check out this fractal. And so I, I have the Line 6 um, Helix, and it mm -hmm. just doesn't even compare to what this <sighs> fractal is. And um, so when I'm doing electrics, if I'm not going directly in the front of my Apollo and using logic amps or mm -hmm. contact amps, I'm going into that fractal for electrics. Huh, I have to check out the fractal. I have a Kemper, but I'm really like, I've heard things about it, but that's, that's super interesting, man. Uh, go to guitars. So electric, what is, what is, what would be closest to you? Yeah. So there is a, a Stratocaster that I would call a parts caster. It is um, something that a, a friend of mine in Shreveport built. 
um, this guy has always set up my guitars like since I was like 14 years old. And this is um, a, a person at my church or whatever at the time mm-hmm. said, hey, you need to take your, your guitars to this guy. And he just had a little shop out back, but he built this Stratocaster that I promise you is the best sounding Strat I've ever played and it never falls out of tune. So when I was a road musician, I was touring with Brandy Clark. We were, um, you know, did some heavy touring for a couple of years and I always relied on that guitar because I knew that it would hold tune and sound good. And so that's my favorite guitar. If I'm in the writing session, I know I can pick up that guitar and I have to spend five minutes trying to get it in tune before I lay a part down. Now that's really cool. How did you end up touring with Brandy Clark? That's like I like how ca- it's very casual. It's like when I was touring with Brit, it's like, all right, tell me about that. Like, oh. how did that score? So, no, this is totally part of the the um, kind of the journey because yeah. as I was writing in town in my pub deal, I got in the room with Brandy, and actually, the person that hooked us up in the room was her guitar player at the time doing acoustic shows but he got busy he couldn't make a show he was sick so hey you know brandy you should go out and do the show with her you're, you're, you'll kill it and then so i did one show and then she asked me to do another and then two years later it, it i was just kind of uh, became the guitar player for her band for a while and we toured with alan jackson uh we toured with eric church dwight yokum uh, I got to play Madison Square, Red Rocks. I mean, it was amazing in the short period of time that I toured as a musician. I got to see and do a lot of things. Um, and it was cool because it was, it was a country band. We weren't running tracks or anything else. So, I mean, I was playing with excellent musicians. We weren't relying yeah. on anything but each other, you know, and, and I feel like that's more uncommon these days with the market and having to run tracks and live auto tune and all that stuff. It was kind of more that old school touring band vibe. And I, I dug that. Because I feel like every experience that you had when it came to music just helped you for songwriting, just helped you for producing. Like that alone, playing especially with like seasoned players and being like, we're going to play every night together <laughs> is amazing. Yeah, it levels you up. And for me, I I actually did a workshop last night and a part of it was talking about just being prepared and practicing before you are presented these opportunities. And before I went out on the road and we went to our first practice, I I was in my room, my little apartment in, in Madison, Tennessee, practicing every night, couple hours a night for weeks singing all the harmony parts, learning all the guitar parts, buying new pedals, trying to learn how to match the record. Like there was so much prep work that went in that by the time I showed up, it was just enjoyment because I was, I, I knew, I knew the songs like the back of my head. I knew that I could sing the harms so tight because I had sing, sang against her record so often before I got the opportunity. So it was just like anything else. I wanted to be able to develop a relationship with Brandy and write with her. And that absolutely did happen. I've, I've got a few cuts on her last couple projects and she asked me to play guitar on her last project that she did with, um, uh, Jay Joyce. And dude, let me tell you, uh, I was talking about, <laughs> let me, let me tell you about yeah. this real quick because this is a, a, a cool situation. Brandy asked Jay Joyce, said, Hey, can I bring my road guitar player in here? This guy that's been playing with me the last couple of years. I like what he adds live. Can he add some stuff to the record? Absolutely. So it, beyond being a road musician, I got to go work with Jay Joyce for two <laughs> to three weeks because of Brandy Clark vouching yeah. for me and saying, Hey, come be on this record. And Jay was like, 
cool. Yeah. Bring him in. So I remember I brought my little, you know, Fender twin amp and my little, you know, pack of pedals or whatever. And I remember Jay just kind of looking at me like, dude, come plug into this. And like, (laughs) you know, sets me up with this gear, slides this pedal board over there, sets up the tone, like just really babies me on this session to show me, like, just to kind of show me what it, what it takes to get beyond a a great record. And, um, I'll wrap this up real quick about this session, but it was awesome. He said, what are you doing Sunday? And I said, well, you know, we're recording at noon. He goes, yeah, but what are you doing Sunday morning? Can you be here at nine? And I was like, yeah. So I did not know what he wanted, what we were going to do. And I showed up at nine o'clock Sunday morning and I put on the cans and he obviously had another session going on. The artist wasn't there, but he had a whole, the same Brandy band was going to cut another track that he was producing. Mm -hmm. And the intro comes on and the vocal comes on. It was Carrie Underwood. And I was like, oh my God. I am playing on a freaking Carrie <laughs> Underwood track just because I was in the studio doing the Brandy Clark record. My stuff was already there set up. Jay was yeah. kind enough to invite me over and I ended up having a guitar credit on Carrie Underwood's Smoke Break just because of the the right place, right time. One of those Nashville things. <laughs> it's wild, right? Dude, that is wild, but <laughs> it's wild, it's the story, but... Dude, like just hearing your work ethic and just like, as you said, like, you know, before you went to even go tour with her or even in the practice, you spent hours just researching, playing, learning, delving in, just not to the point of like, I kind of know this, but like you absorbed it to the the point where then when you went into play, you were like, it was fun because all these things were pouring out of you because you put in the time. Dude. You know, I actually got in trouble one time. I, I like to have a little fun on the road, and I, I went through this this season of making pot brownies. And I, <laughs> I I brought some pot brownies out, and I took a couple before I was um, playing a show one night. And I got in a lot of trouble because they could tell I was super blazed before I got on the stage. <laughs> but I knew the part so well, so freaking well that I nailed it, and I knew that I nailed it. And I got off the stage and everybody, it was just kind of a laughing thing because they were just giving me a hard time. Like, are you going to be able to perform tonight? Are you going to be able to do this and everything else? And I just got up there. And because, you know, (laughs) it was all those months of preparation and weeks that it really does come second nature whenever you prepare yourself that way. And I'm not saying that that's the way you should treat opportunities. That was not the way I should have treated that opportunity. But it was a funny time and it did prove to me that if you do prepare, you know, even whenever things aren't, you know, the best situation you can still <laughs> yeah. make it through and deliver. So, Oh, that's fucking hilarious. My, my, <laughs> when, in another, in another lifetime, when I was a worship leader, I used to bring in friends and they were great players and they would do that. Uh, and then one time uh, we were in a session, we were, or when we were doing one of the services we were playing and I was like, he's just playing nothing but blues traveler licks. What is going on? <laughs> and then afterwards he was like, yeah, before uh, the service, we got high in the car and, uh, but it was all in the same key, but it was nothing but blues traveler licks. But, but to me, again, just your entire story is refreshing because you went in with the intention of like, I'm going to do something and I'm just going to do it. Like I'm going to make it work. And all the different scenarios of how you adapted from going from, you know, just bringing your trailer up, working in a pawn shop, eventually just embracing more. Hey, I'm going to keep on running. You know what? I'll throw this recording in because I want to give more than just like, as you said, an iPhone demo, which doesn't always convey the song well, especially when it's just like, you know, you hear nothing but guitar up front, some vocals in the back and the guitar is a little off time. 
but like a slightly produced like like hey and and then there are hooks in it which then went to this which went to this to now now you you know as you said like last night you've got you know music city playbook in which you just mentor to people because i think that's something people need coming from the town that i did there were not a lot of examples of successful creatives so yeah. before the age of the internet and everything was so accessible being able to follow people on instagram and all this stuff like when i moved to town it was still myspace days i mean so <laughs> whenever you think about that i mean that that that's been in a digital age that's been a long time ago but i say that to say there was no tools or nothing to kind of teach me about navigating a pub deal or navigating a session or how to pitch your song to a label, like all these things that I've learned over the last 11 years of being here, you know, it's over the last couple months, it's weighed heavily on me that do you want to just be remembered as things that people that attach your credits on all music, or do you want to leave a bigger idea, a bigger thought of how all this stuff comes about because, you know, as creatives, I mean, it's tough. It's tough to be successful and sustain and keep a good positive mindset. So for me, I was looking up a bunch of self-help stuff on YouTube and, and reading a bunch of books that kind of just, I don't know, armored me up for the downtimes because, you know, I can, I'm giving you the highlight reel of all these amazing things, but there were times that I was driving my grandma's car and I was in credit card debt and I didn't know how things were going to work out. And through that time, I was just like cleansing my, my thoughts with, you can do this, dude, there is a payout. Even when my family was like, okay, it's time to call it, you know, come on home kind of deal. Like yeah. I was like, no, there is something on the other side of that. If I can just stay here long enough to see it, I know I'm going to get there. So I want to be able to deliver that same style of motivation to younger creatives who want to do this because had I listened to other people and the realist in my life, I would have missed out on so much opportunity and so many amazing things that have unfolded for me just because I was headstrong enough to believe in myself and say, you know what? I'm just an average guitar player. I'm just an average singer. I'm just an average songwriter. But if I can combine all those three, maybe it can be something amazing. Dude, this is so good. And I appreciate you taking the time uh, to do this. And your story is incredible. We'll put everything and how you can contact them and Music City Playbook below. Forrest, thanks for hanging out. Dude, thanks for having me, man. This was a great interview. Twenty twenty one is here, and with that comes resolutions. And maybe one of your New Year's resolutions is to up your songwriting and guitar game. And you're looking for things to build on to improve the skills that you already have. That's why I created the Song Rank for Guitar Insiders, because guess what? Every month you're going to get a new skill building module. We have a monthly meeting where you can get feedback. We have a private group where you can start to connect with other co-writers, start collaborating. So if your bucket list is to write better songs and build your skills, you need this. And so that's why I'm giving you your first month for $1. Just go to songrankforguitar.com, click the Insiders button, and when you're at checkout, enter the promo code YOURYEAR2021. All right, that does it for this week's episode. It was edited and produced by Chris Fafalius. I'm Mike Myers. Until next time. <laughs>